Police say a candidate who lost his election tried to have his rival office holders killed. The lead starts right now. One city, four homes, each one shot at. Police say who the man was who orchestrated the attacks. They say he wanted to cause injury or death and the apparent targets were his Democratic rivals. Plus, trading in on the Biden family name, House Republicans ready to investigate presidential son Hunter and presidential brothers Jimmy and Frank Biden for trying to use their access to the now president to try to make money. Where does the investigatory trail begin while CNN is investigating? And how did two passenger planes end up on a collision course? Could this very serious question impact your next flight? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and the White House Counsel's Office desperately trying to explain why the Biden White House has repeatedly given the American people incomplete, late information about President Biden and his staff's handling of classified documents, both when he left office as a vice president in 2017 and in the six years since then. A spokesman for the office attempted to justify the lack of immediate disclosure when classified documents were found last November, and since then, by acknowledging, quote, there's a tension between protecting and safeguarding the integrity of an ongoing investigation with providing information publicly appropriate with that. That ongoing investigation that the spokesman referred to is now in the hands of special counsel Robert Herr. And there remain a mountain of unanswered questions today, including whether any more classified documents are right now being improperly stored at President Biden's homes or former offices, how those documents got there, who had access to them, and why lawyers who do not apparently have security clearances are currently the ones doing the searching. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, White House lawyers are not ruling out a future sit-down between the president and the Department of Justice. President Biden again ignoring questions about the investigation into his handling of classified documents. We have a couple of special guests as the head coach and star guard of the world champion Golden State Warriors made their appearance in the briefing room. It's uh, something that we don't ever take for granted. For a White House scrambling to get its footing. You guys can ask me this 100 times, 200 times if you wish. I'm going to keep saying the same thing. A not-so-subtle effort to turn the page on a turbulent and perilous moment for Biden. The president has confidence. They reached out to the archives. They reached out to the Department of Justice. With sources saying Biden plans to stay focused on his schedule and agenda. The president's going to stay laser focused on delivering for the American people. And far away from any more public commentary like this amid an ongoing special counsel investigation. By the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. The probe, now in its early stages, to pin down how roughly 20 documents, classified markings from Biden's time as vice president, ended up in two separate locations, a Biden-affiliated think tank in Washington and Biden's family home in Wilmington, Delaware. White House officials pledging full cooperation with the early-stage special counsel investigation. I'm here today to announce the appointment of Robert Herr as a special counsel. But for a second day, slamming House Republicans, who have now launched two probes of their own. A White House spokesman on Monday saying the lawmakers have, quote, no credibility and are playing politics in a shamelessly hypocritical attempt to attack President Biden. House Republicans lose credibility when they engage in fake outrage about an issue that they're clearly pursuing only for partisan gain. 
followed by a conference call Tuesday to level more attacks. But the messaging effort doing little to address critical questions. With the appointment of a special counsel, we will continue to be limited in what we can share publicly. With little detail on the more than two-month period from the initial discovery of documents on November 2nd to the December 20th discovery of additional documents to a third and fourth discovery of additional documents just last week. But as White House officials maintain the ongoing investigation will continue to limit their public answers. I understand that there's a tension between protecting and safeguarding the integrity of an ongoing investigation with providing information publicly appropriate with that. A clear public effort to draw attention elsewhere. And Jake, while White House officials have pledged full cooperation with the special counsel, they have been less forthcoming about how they will address the dual House Republican probes now currently underway. They say they will engage in good faith requests from House Republicans as to what they will define as good faith, still very much to be determined. And as you noted, full cooperation, at least at this point in time, may include requests for the president to sit down. Nobody's saying that's not an option at this point, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks. Also in our politics lead, a former Republican candidate for state legislature has been arrested and is due in a New Mexico court tomorrow. He's accused of a revenge plot targeting Democratic lawmakers. As CNN's Kyung Law reports for us now, Albuquerque police say Solomon Pena, who lost his race in November, gave gunmen addresses and paid them cash to, quote, cause death and serious injury to Democratic officials. One came right through here, and then we've got the rest over here. About a dozen bullets embedded in the outside of Debbie O'Malley's home. I was very angry and uh, just disgusted about the whole thing. And these are significantly sized holes. They are. It was so loud. This happened when my husband and I were asleep, and my grandkids could have been spending the night. O'Malley immediately suspected who the gunman might be, this man. Hi, my name's Solomon Pena. Can I speak with Debbie O'Malley? Solomon Pena, who had been looking for O'Malley, went to her daughter's address and then to her home a month before the shooting. This is him on the other side of the fence. He seemed agitated. He seemed a little aggressive to me. I didn't consider him a threat then, but he was upset that he had lost the election. Police arrested him Monday in connection with a string of what they call politically motivated shootings of homes of four Democratic leaders in New Mexico. No one was injured. It is believed that he is uh, the mastermind that was uh, behind this. Police say he's suspected of hiring a contractor for cash to commit at least two of the four shootings from December 4th to January 3rd. Pena was a Republican candidate for a state house seat in New Mexico, and he spent years in prison for burglary and larceny. But a judge allowed the convicted felon to be on the ballot in 2022, calling it unconstitutional for Pena to be denied the ability to serve. He lost in November by a landslide, then accused his opponent of rigging the election. One week later, tweeting, he never conceded the race. Police arrested Pena after they say the trail led to multiple guns tracing back to the shootings. Photographs of the arrest warrant show Pena with one of the four suspected shooters who was in possession of a gun used in one of the shootings at the time of the arrest. Police say Pena texted the home addresses of four Democratic targets to four suspects who carry out the shootings. And in an exchange texted, they just certified it. They sold us out to the highest bidder. They were literally laughing at us while they were doing it. 
And Jake, what we keep hearing again and again from the elected officials who are targeted here in Albuquerque is that the larger problem of this attack on democracy and election denialism at the highest levels of American government, that problem is not solved. But at least this immediate local crisis, they hope, is over for now. Solomon Pena now enters a criminal process. His first court appearance is tomorrow. Jake. Kyung Lan, Albuquerque, New Mexico for us. Thank you so much. And joining me now to discuss is outgoing Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland. Today is his last full day on the job. Governor, good to see you. Thanks for having me, Jack. Um, so I want to start with this horrible story out of New Mexico. This Republican candidate pushed election lies, arrested and accused of orchestrating shootings at the homes of four Democrats in the state. Obviously innocent until proven guilty. But at the end of the day, four lawmakers um, targeted violently. Is this part of a larger problem, do you think? Well, it's, it sure sounds like it is. I mean, it's the uh, inevitable end result of uh, what's been years and years of toxic, angry, divisive politics that I've been kind of you know, talking about and expressing concern over for, for quite some time. Uh, I don't know the details of the case, but uh, and obviously everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But uh, the, the fact that we get to the point in America where these kinds of things are even you know, potentially, you know, possible. It just, it doesn't make sense. I mean, we've got to do something about the broken politics. One of the lawmakers whose home was shot at, uh, Democrat Javier Martinez, told CNN in this statement, quote, we have seen far too much political violence lately, and all of these events are powerful reminders that stirring up fear, heightening tensions, and stoking hatred can have devastating consequences. Obviously, we saw this on January 6, 2021, uh, the inevitable result of months and months of, of lying, convincing Trump supporters uh, that something sacred was being stolen. I mean, false allegations, but still. Um, how much do you hold Donald Trump responsible? Well, I don't know about the, the incident today, but I certainly held D Donald Trump responsible for the, the actions on January 6th. And I'm, I'm the one who was responding to the crisis immediately by sending in the Maryland State Police and the Maryland National Guard and spoke out pretty strongly about it, I think, before anybody in Congress did. So, um, look, I, inciting violence and, uh, you know, this kind of, kind of uh, crazy conspiracy, you know, politics is, uh, is, is something we've got to do something about. That's why I've been continually speaking out about it. Uh, after the midterms, you said this about Donald Trump, quote, I think it's basically the third election in a row that Donald Trump has cost us the race. And it's like three strikes, you're out. Um, but then you saw, I'm sure, the speaker's race uh, took Kevin McCarthy 15 ballots, but he got there. He's the speaker of the House. Uh, and Trump was involved in trying to line up those votes. Speaker McCarthy thanked Donald Trump specifically uh, after his one. Uh, does Trump still have a, a, a deep hold on your party? Well, there's no question he still has an influence on a certain segment of the party. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what uh, Trump did on the McCarthy voter when. I know on the 15th round he finally got through, and I know he weighed in with a couple of folks. But, uh, you know, his, his uh, influence on the party is diminishing. I've been saying for a long time it's going to be a battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. And, uh, but he he's, hasn't gone away. And at this point, he's the only announced candidate for president in 2024. And uh, he has a good chunk of the Republican Party still follows him. But it's, it's vastly reduced from where it used to be. You're leaving office as a Republican governor in a largely Democratic state with an approval rating uh, of 73 percent, according to a Washington Post poll from October. That's pretty high. Uh, and, and I'm wondering, I interviewed uh, former now Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, who also Republican governor, Democratic state, leaving office with very, very high approval ratings. It does not seem, however, that your party elders 
uh, or grassroots are like saying, look, here are two Republican governors in Democratic states who are hugely popular. Let us learn their lessons. Let us get them to be our presidential nominees. Why not? Well, look, there's no question that uh, an overwhelming majority of people like the kind of politics that Charlie Baker and I have successfully done for the past eight years. And he and I, for eight years, every quarter, have been kind of leading the pack. And it's because whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent, I think they really do like the fact uh, we're Republican governors in deep blue states that we have to work together in order to get things done. And that bipartisan, common-sense solutions, being willing to not demonize the other side and to focus on solving problems is very popular in both parties. Now, you know, the, the, it doesn't get all the attention uh, from the media or on social media or from the, you know, the, the, the most passionate people on either extreme, but it's where most of America is. Also, Phil Scott from uh, yeah, Phil Vermont, Scott's another, another Republican governor. Yeah. That's not even a blue state. That's like a, that's a pink state or something. I mean, it, you know, so Maryland and, and Massachusetts both, uh, you know, Biden won by 33 points. You know, I ran 45 points ahead of yeah. Trump in, a, in the bluest state in the country. So should your party be looking to, looking to you and Governor Baker and Governor Scott more and saying this could be a sweep? Or is, have people just made the calculation we need to appeal to the base? Well, I think uh, it depends on who you're talking to. But the party has been focused on firing up the base, and they've done a terrible job at reaching swing voters in the middle. And I've been preaching uh, for quite some time, since November of 2020, right after the election, when I spoke at the Reagan Library, Reagan Institute, I said, we've got to get back to a bigger tent party that appeals to more people or we're not going to win elections. And that's been the case. I mean, we lost the White House. We lost the Senate. We barely uh, took the House back after losing it. Um, We've lost the governor's seats and state legislative bodies. If you want to win elections and we want to be a a, a party that that gets to govern, we've got to convince uh, independents and discerning Democrats and swing voters that we have the best ideas. And you, you can't just appeal to the base. It's a losing strategy. And that's what I, my point about Donald Trump losing three times in a row. I don't think we should do it again. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is often cited by conservative Republicans as somebody they might want to see run for president. You've called him an important voice, one of the important voices for the party. Uh, do you think he would be good at what you're talking about in terms of reaching out to people in the middle? Well, he hasn't done it so far. I mean, he's done a really good job of uh, getting on Fox News and he's capturing a lot of attention. But he certainly hasn't done it the way Charlie Baker and Phil Scott and I have. I, I mean, I, I, you know, we, we're a, consistently the most uh, highest job approval in the country, and I think DeSantis is down around 30th place among governors. Is that because he's too focused on the base, too focused on red meat issues? Well, I just I, think that he, he is focused on the base, and he's, he's doing pretty well with the base. But uh, he's going to have to figure out a way, if he, if he wants to have a, a political future beyond Florida, to appeal to a broader audience. Right after the midterms, you talked to my colleague, Dana Bash. She asked you if you were thinking about uh, running for president in 2024, you said you still had to do your day job until January 18th. Well, today's January 17th, so I think that I can ask this question. Are you going to run for president? I really don't know, Jake. I, uh, I'm going to finish the job tomorrow and then maybe take a little bit of a break and try to see what the future holds. I do care very deeply about getting my party back to a, a bigger tent party that can win elections. I'm concerned about the country, but I don't know. Uh, you know I'm going to be a voice to continue to, to go in that direction. But whether or not that means I'll be a candidate or not, I'm not sure. Do you think that there is room for you in the party? I, I think uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not ready to give up on my Republican Party or on the country. And I think there's obviously room. And we've been, very, been one of the most successful uh, governors in the country. Outgoing Maryland Governor uh, Larry Hogan leaving office after eight years with one of the highest approval ratings and uh, no indictments that I know of. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Governor. Good Thank to you. see you. 
Fresh out of his White House meeting with President Biden, the Dutch Prime Minister is going to join us next as the two NATO allies make new promises to help Ukraine. And for the first time in more than 60 years, the population of China has dropped. How this admission could have an impact on the entire world, including on you. Stay with us. In our world lead, at least six children were among the victims of the horrific Russian strike on an apartment building in central Ukraine on Saturday, according to Ukrainian police. One of the dead is 15-year-old Maria. Her teacher remembered her as a, quote, incredible child. In total, at least 45 were people, 45 people were killed in this attack in Dnipro. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is live for us in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk. Ben, while this is happening, there's a lot of new Western military aid in the pipeline, notably these battle tanks. When will Ukraine be able to use these new weapons? Well, the pipeline in this case is not very fast moving. First of all, uh, these weapon systems, for instance, the Challenger, the Challenger 2, a British tank, uh, the Leopard 2, a German tank, and perhaps somewhere down the line, an a- Abrams tanks from the United States, they take time to get here. But more than anything, it's the training that needs to be conducted for the Ukrainian troop crews so they can operate them and also the training for maintenance crews so they can keep these things running. Uh, the Abrams, for instance, uh, uses a huge amount of fuel, which is going to be a challenge in a country that has had fuel shortages uh, in the past and with the Russians focusing some of their rocket attacks on the infrastructure that could make things very complicated. The timetable that they need to be delivered by with crews that can operate them and with the ammunition and the logistical support is basically we're looking at the spring. That is when the Russians, it's many believe, will be conducting some sort of spring offensive. If those weapon systems aren't on the ground, the situation, which is already fairly difficult, could become dire. And, and Ben, th- there's, there's ongoing intense fighting in the east with the key city of Bakhmut at the epicenter. What's the latest there? Well, we spent the last two days in Bakhmut, and what we saw is an intensification of the Russian bombardment, and uh, we're hearing a lot of small arms fire. So the fighting is picking up, and the feeling is that as the Russians mop up Solidar, even though the Ukrainians insist they still control part of that town, which is about 10 miles north of Bakhmut, that the Russians will refocus uh, their efforts to try to encircle Bakhmut and eventually uh, take it. So we spoke to one officer who told us, come back to Bakhmut in two days and it's going to be a lot hotter. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's bring in the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte. Uh, Prime Minister Rutte, thank you so much for being here. Really Great appreciate it. Great to be it. here. Thank so you, you just met with President Biden and with the new House Speaker, uh, Kevin McCarthy. How do you feel about the future of U.S. aid to Ukraine after those meetings. Some of the Republicans in Congress, who are now newly in power, have been skeptical. Extremely positive. I must say the President Biden is very much focused on this. We totally agreed that we can only stop uh, when the war stops and with a successful outcome for Ukraine. So the end has to be successful for Ukraine, Russia losing it, uh, losing the war. And also, I must say, with the Speaker, uh, very clear that there is large support in Congress, also on the Republican side, uh, to make this happen. So you think this war ends with Russia losing? It's not, there, there can't be a negotiated peace where 
Ukraine gives some land territory. It has to be no Russia expelled, Russia loses. Well, of course, it's up to Ukraine to decide whether they want to engage in peace talks. But the only one who can decide it is Volodymyr Zelensky sitting in Kiev, the president of Ukraine. It cannot be the Netherlands, uh, the U.S. or any other country to decide that for Ukraine. Uh, if you would be under attack, taxes or whatever part of America by others, you would never accept me telling you you have to negotiate now whilst your country is under attack. So it has to be the Ukrainian uh, president. And in the meantime, we need to do everything to make sure that they can be successful. And I must say what America is doing, the stuff you are supplying, the military gear, is impressive and really has been the game changer, I believe, early 2022 uh, for Ukraine to be successful at this. And you are giving an, a Patriot air defense missile system to, to Ukraine to help them mm -hmm. de defend themselves. Uh, are you worried about um, the war escalating worse? Yeah, what, what we decided is the intention, and that's what I mentioned today, to participate in the U.S.-German initiative. And Patriots are crucial because it's about air defense. So it doesn't have to be a whole system. Uh, it could also be... Uh, gear as part of the system. Crucial is the interoperability, the training, etc. So we will be part of that uh, coalition with Germany and the US. Uh, and I was on the phone yesterday with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. And air defense, of course, for him, uh, for the Ukrainians, is key. We have seen what happened in the Dnipro this weekend. Yeah. Uh, over 40 people killed, children, men, women, uh, families. It is it's really horrendous when you look at that footage. The Netherlands has pledged uh, 2.5 billion euros uh, to support Ukraine in 2023. Um, if the war drags into a third year, a fourth year, a fifth year, um, will there be a, a, at any point a limit at how much the Netherlands is able to contribute? No, we will continue to do this. Uh, and of course, in the Netherlands, people will say, hey, but we have our own issues, like the high gas prices, inflation, etc. And my answer always is, this is end-end. We need to take care of the issues of the Dutch people and at the same time. We have to make sure that Ukraine can win this. In our interest, it's about our values. But, and this is also the message I'm giving here in the US, and it is really, uh, people are really listening to this in that sense that people agree. It's also, from a security perspective, crucial. If Putin would win this, it won't stop at Ukraine. It will continue. And then, in the end, uh, the collective safety of the whole West is under threat. And that's why uh, the Netherlands is part of the, the NATO alliance. Part of that agreement is to spend 2% of your GDP on defense. The last document I looked at, which was from last year, said that uh, the Netherlands was spending 1.45%, yes. not yet at 2%. When will you be at 2%, the obligation? 24. In 2024, we will be at 2%, so we have decided to spend an extra 5 billion. Compared to the size of the U.S., that will be another 100 billion if we would have an economy the size of the United States, 5 billion uh, given the size of our economy. Structurally, annually, $5 billion extra. Uh, and that's one of the things I discussed today that also means that we need to buy new stuff. Uh, and, of course, the U.S. next to Germany and some other countries, France, but U.S., of course, is one of the biggest suppliers of armed, armed systems. And, and, of course, here uh, we're very much looking at the U.S. to help us to make sure that we can stock up uh, our military. But the Dutch are fully committed to this fight for Ukraine. Yes, I would even argue that we are without bragging about it. But you asking me this, I can say this, <laughs> that we are in the, in the top league. Yeah. When you look at per capita, I think we are in the top three uh, with the US, with the United Kingdom, uh, because we really feel that this is necessary. And we are nudging others to do as much uh, as possible. Again, it is values, but also security, safety. It won't end 
with Kiev if he would be successful. And he cannot be successful. We have to stop this. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Safe travels. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the new questions being asked after a very, very close call, uncomfortably so, between two passenger planes at a major international airport in the United States. Stay with us. In our national lead now, federal investigators say interviews are underway with the pilots of two planes that nearly crashed into each other on Friday night. A Delta Airlines jet had to abort its takeoff at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York to avoid hitting an American Airlines plane crossing the runway just in front of it, as CNN's Pete Montine reports for us now. American Airlines now says it's also launching its own probe. There are urgent new questions from investigators and experts following the near disaster on the runway at JFK. The National Transportation Safety Board tells CNN interviews are ongoing after a Delta Airlines 737 and an American Airlines 777 were on a collision course Friday night. American Airlines 1067, hold position. Air traffic control recordings detail how the American flight was told to go to the end of JFK's runway 4 left, but instead crossed that runway in the path of the Delta flight that was taking off. A mistake caught by air traffic controllers with just seconds to spare. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Rejecting. The Delta pilot slammed on the brakes, the FAA says stopping approximately 1,000 feet before where the American Airlines flight had just crossed the runway. It would have been uh, catastrophic uh, had a collision taken place. Former NTSB Managing Director Peter Goles thinks investigators will now dig into whether the fault lies with the pilots of the American flight, apparently confused over directions from air traffic control. The last class we were given, we were cleared to uh, cross. Is that correct? American 106 Heavy, uh, we're departing runway 4 left. Um, I guess we'll listen to the tapes, but uh, you were supposed to depart runway 4 left. You're currently holding short of 3-1 uh, left. In a new statement, American Airlines says it is conducting a full internal review and cooperating with the National Transportation Safety Board in their investigation. There were plenty of visual cues for this flight crew to know that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Meanwhile, the FAA has not said how it will fix its computer system that failed last week, causing a nationwide ground stop and thousands of delays and cancellations. Sources tell CNN that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is pushing for upgrades faster than planned. Even still, the FAA has no Senate-confirmed administrator leading the agency. We're going to clear the runway. So there will be an administrator, and that administrator can do his job. American Airlines has not answered why its flight continued on to its destination of London Heathrow. Experts are worried that means audio from the cockpit voice recorder might be lost. Typically, they only record about two hours. The NTSB wants that up to 25 hours. But that's a recommendation, Jake, that the FAA has not yet acted on. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, Trading in on access as House Republicans ready their own investigation. CNN is looking into how Joe Biden's son Hunter and the president's brothers Jimmy and Frank have used their family name to try to make money. Stay with us. In our politics lead, House Republicans are ready to flex their new investigative muscles, probing business dealings by members of President Biden's family, which includes 
Allegations that the president's son, Hunter, used his familial connections to improperly line his pockets and benefit his business partners. And as CNN's chief investigative correspondent, Pamela Brown, reports, a CNN review shows that then-Vice President Joe Biden did meet with some of Hunter's partners and associates. He has built his political career on promises of honesty, hard work, and a pledge that a family name means something. I give you my word as a Biden. I give you my word as a Biden. But while Joe Biden swears by his name in politics, his son and two brothers spent years trying to benefit from the Biden name. It's all now the focus of a Republican-led congressional investigation. We want to know what the Biden administration is trying to hide from the American people and why they are not being transparent. Republican Congressman James Comer now chairs the House Oversight Committee and has set his sights on Joe Biden's son, Hunter, a mysterious laptop now in the hands of the FBI and long-held conspiracy theories about President Joe Biden and what he does or doesn't know. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. Despite his denials, a CNN review of the laptop data, as well as other public material, shows that Joe Biden did interact with some of his son's associates while serving as vice president, though it's unclear exactly what was discussed. One example, the Republican site, Miguel Aleman Magnani, a Mexican businessman and son of the former president who Hunter was trying to woo. In 2014, Aleman Magnani and his dad were photographed at the White House with then-Vice President Biden. In a later email, Hunter Biden reminds Alemani Magnani of the favors he's done for him. We have been talking about business deals and partnerships for seven years. I have brought every single person you have ever asked me to bring to the effing White House and the vice president's house and the inauguration. Hunter Biden bluntly acknowledged the power of the Biden name in a memoir, writing that the Ukrainian energy company Burisma, which put him on its board, considered my last name gold. I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. Joe Biden's brothers have repeatedly referenced him in their private dealings. Frank Biden, a developer of for-profit charter schools, has invoked his brother in trying to convince local officials to approve his projects. Like in Sunrise, Florida, where he told the city in 2015 to trust his venture. Not because of Frank, but because of the honor of being the brother of a guy I think we all know and love. In 2021, at a gathering of medical professionals, he made this pledge. The bully pulpit that I have as a result of the privilege of being associated with, with my brother Joey. And I'll do everything in my power to support you to get the job done, to get federal dollars to your research. Frank Biden told CNN there has been zero interaction between his brother's public office and his private business, adding, do I engage in any way in quid pro quo on any level? Absolutely not. The last name gave credibility, you know, initially. Healthcare entrepreneur Michael Frey told CNN Joe Biden's other brother, James, broke financial promises he made while referencing the Biden name. Frey's company filed a lawsuit alleging fraud by James Biden, who denied the claims. Frey spoke to CNN before the lawsuit settled in 2020. Everything was on the Biden name, and, and so we took that to heart. 
James Biden was also named in a lawsuit filed in July. He allegedly received about $600,000 in loans in 2018 from a company he worked with, AmeriCorps Health, based upon representations that his last name Biden could open doors and that he could obtain a large investment from the Middle East based on his political connections. The suit states that the investment was never delivered. The lawsuit was settled, though James Biden denied the allegations in court filings. He did not respond to a request for comment. Kathleen Clark, a government ethics expert, calls it all troubling. We have certainly examples of Biden family members explicitly trading on his name, trying to convince business partners to to do deals with them. That's outrageous. Even so, government ethics experts say the Biden's ethical challenges pale in comparison to Donald Trump. One of the differences is that Trump himself personally was corrupt and uh, certainly did enrich himself uh, uh, through the use of, of government power. Even the Republican congressman leading the Biden investigation raises concerns about Trump's dealings while president. And you believe there should have been more transparency with Trump and his, his family members and the business that they I, may have been I doing do. overseas? I do. I absolutely do. Comer says he wants to introduce bipartisan legislation to tighten ethics laws. But the committee's first priority is the Bidens. And it's important to note there is no proof the president has done anything illegal. We sent the White House a list of questions, including whether the president stands by his statement that he never discussed his relatives' businesses with them. In response, the White House sent us this statement. The president has pledged to restore ethics to the White House and has established the most rigorous ethics guidelines of any administration in history. No family member has or will serve in the administration or be involved in government decision making. Jake? And Pamela, you said that there's no proof that President Biden or then Vice President Biden um, did anything illegal by meeting with Hunter's business associates, including that Mexican businessman. That, that email was stunning. But what proof would be necessary to show that a law might have been violated? Right. So we know that both uh, presidents and the vice presidents, they are exempt from ethics and conflict of interest laws. We learned that in the Trump administration, right, where uh, President Trump uh, couldn't be held liable for ethic violations. So it's not likely going to be an issue for the Bidens in terms of the ethics laws. Um, But, of course, public perception might be an issue here, as laid out in the piece. Jake? All right, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up. The announcement today about the birth rate in China that is catching the whole world's attention. Stay with us. China's first population decline in 60 years is our money lead today. Newly released government data shows the birth rate at a record low with the fewest babies born last year since the founding of communist China in 1949. This demographic data follows a U.N. report that shows India is set to surpass China as the world's most populous country this year. CNN's Richard Quest is at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And Richard, this could have huge implications for China's economy. Oh, for everyone's economy. Uh, Jake, because the first question we've got to ask is, can we trust the numbers? And I don't mean, have they understated them? I mean, has the Chinese population actually been falling for longer than they're prepared to admit now? Has this been going back for some years? And now you extrapolate out, you're talking about health, education, pensions, the ability of the Chinese to support an older population at a time when the working population 
isn't an engine of economic growth. The ramifications of this, because now you're also looking at other countries, how will they have to respond with their own labour force? So it's really increasingly important, which is why here at Davos today, the Vice Premier Lee was here and he was putting on a very different show. For him, it was all about China opening up. We must always promote all-round opening up. Opening up as a basic state policy is a catalyst of reform and development in China and a key driver of economic progress. China's door to the outside world will only open wider. Now you try and square that circle from what he just said with the policies we've seen out of China over the last 12 months, 24 months, and you realise that China is now starting to understand the economic pickle that they're in, Jake. And Richard, changes in China's economy, of course, have a global impact, as you noted. That's a big topic there in Davos this week. Absolutely, because the difficulties that the global economy at the moment are facing are so enormous. People haven't come here to Davos to settle or solve anything. The big issues are underway. For instance, interest rates. The Fed's done its work. The medicine's working through the patient. You look at Ukraine. More goods are being sent. More weapons are being sent. The big issue of whether to send tanks and whether Germany will allow that and what the US will add in. You talk about population, demographics, health, education. And you cannot ignore, Jake, the 1.4 billion people in China, all of whom... As the, as the numbers get slower, get lower, get more difficult, China has to work out what to do next. All right, Richard Quest in Davos, Switzerland for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, the new impeachment plans from Republicans now in control of the House as they scrutinize Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and his actions, or lack thereof, on the border. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, House Republicans laying the groundwork for a possible impeachment. The target is Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The hearings that could jumpstart the process could begin in a matter of weeks, Republicans say. Plus, what police call a cartel-style execution. Six people shot and killed, including a baby. And leading this hour, almost a year into Russia's war in Ukraine, what's amounting to one of the deadliest single attacks, a Russian strike hitting an apartment building in Dnipro, killing 45 people at least, including six children. Ukraine's president calling the attack a war crime. We're going to start with CNN's Fred Pleitkin, who is in Dnipro, Ukraine, where the community is feeling grief, exhaustion, and anger following this horrific attack. Sirens mark the end of a search and rescue marathon. For three days, responders worked day and night trying to save lives. Now, authorities say there is no more hope of finding survivors. There's an eerie quiet here now, and you can really see how people were just ripped out of their lives as the building crumbled around them. You can also see the full scale of the destruction. And the Ukrainians say they cleared around 8,500 tons of debris from this area in about 72 hours. And still, more bodies were found, including children, while others remain missing. 
This man searching for his grandson, venting his anger at Russia. There is no mercy for them, he says. I will curse them until the last days of my life. May they die. Kiev says they are certain Russia struck the building with a cruise missile designed to destroy aircraft carriers. Yelenora Ryabikina tells me she was in her apartment in the complex when it was hit. She filmed the chaos when she first left the building and saw the destruction. We thought it was an earthquake or something, she says. Unclear what happened. When we opened the apartment, we saw smoke and dust and heard screams. The Kremlin continues to deny its forces were behind the attack, but Moscow does say Russian fighters are now making gains on the battlefields. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces are still shelling Russian troops around Solidar, which the Russians say is firmly under their control, thanks to fighters from the private military company Wagner. A Wagner unit posting this video after advancing even further and taking a railway station. Wagner acknowledges using convicts recruited directly from Russian prisons to fight, leader Yevgeny Prigozhin recently praising a group that survived. I told you I needed your criminal talents in order to defeat the enemy in Ukraine, Now, those criminal talents are no longer needed. Ukraine says the Wagner assault and the missile strike show they need more advanced weapons from the U.S. and its allies to keep momentum on the battlefield and protect citizens at home. And Jake, the numbers in this incident really are staggering. The death toll currently stands at 45, and it actually did continue to jump today. Fifteen of those uh, dead uh, continue to be unidentified. Nineteen people still unaccounted for. Needless to say, a lot of anger here among the Ukrainians. And of course, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, once again coming out tonight saying there will be a full investigation and vowing to bring those behind those strikes to justice and in front of an international criminal court. Jake. Fred Pleitgen in Dnipro, Ukraine, in central Ukraine. Thank you so much. Today, the top U.S. general met his Ukrainian counterpart in person for the very first time, one day after visiting the site where the U.S. is overseeing the training of Ukrainian soldiers on new weapons and tanks. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon. And Oren, this meeting comes as the U.S. and its allies are pledging even more military support for Ukraine. That's right. Uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, met his Ukrainian counterpart, General Valery Zeluzhny, at an undisclosed location in Poland. Significant because though these two have talked many times before, updated each other on the progress of U.S. support, on the progress of the war in Ukraine, this is the first time the two have met in person. So significant there. According to a readout provided by the Americans, topics of conversation included where the situation stands now and ongoing U.S. support. This comes one day after General Mark Milley visited Grafenwehr, the base in Germany, where the U.S. will carry out what's called combined arms training, essentially maneuvers of larger groups of Ukrainian troops, 500 a month or so, according to the Pentagon, to better improve their ability to retake their own territory in Ukraine. Key to this, of course, is what's coming at the end of the week, the Ukraine Contact Group, where the U.S., and some 50 other countries will get together to see what else is out there for Ukraine. And we've already seen some big announcements here. Poland and Finland have said they're ready to provide tanks. The UK has said they will provide tanks. And Netherlands just announcing they're ready to send their own Patriot battery. Wolf, uh, Jake? Oren, uh, about 100 Ukrainians arrived in Oklahoma today uh, for training on how to use the Patriot missile defense system. What do we know about this training? 
This is a training process that will take several months. Depending on announcing today, the training has officially started after those Ukrainian troops came in, a group of about 90 to 100 of them, over this past weekend. The question, of course, is how long will this take? And that's an even more critical question, not only because of the U.S. Patriot system, Germany also announcing they'll send a battery, and again, the Netherlands today saying they're also ready to provide a battery. That U.S. training is critical to make sure Ukrainians know how to operate a very capable but very complex system. The U.S. hasn't said how long it'll take. They're trying to accelerate it as much as possible, Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon Force, thank you so much. Joining us now in studio is Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. He's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr. Chairman, good to see you. Thanks Thanks, so much. Congratulations on the new post. Um, So Ukraine has received generous support from the U.S. under the Democratic-controlled Congress. Now, of course, Congress is now under Republican control. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who seems to have Kevin McCarthy's ear, she suggested there sh- that the U.S. shouldn't be funding Ukraine at all. She has a group of, of, of like-minded Republicans who feel that way. Can Ukrainians count on the Republican Congress to keep fun- funding uh, the Ukrainian military so they can defeat Russia? No, the, the answer is yes. <clears throat> I think what she wants and others is uh, oversight, accountability. Where is the money going to? Uh, they'd like t- to see audits. You know, our, right now... We have Deloitte and three inspector generals looking at the funding going into Ukraine. Uh, But the fact is, we cannot give up this fight. You see what's at at stake here. The war crimes that are taking place as we speak are are horrific. And I intend to call the inspector prosecutor general uh, to testify before my committee about these war crimes. Because when the American people see this, uh, it moves the dial on public opinion. And maybe you heard or maybe you didn't, but uh, the Danish prime minister was on the show a few minutes ago, uh, and he said, you know, Putin's not going to stop in, in Kiev. Like, if, if Russia is not defeated in Ukraine, he will go into other European countries, uh, including potentially even NATO member countries. Do you agree with that? I do, and I just met with the prime minister of the Netherlands as well. I'm, I'm pleased to see uh, they're going to send a Patriot battery uh, to Ukraine, but they need more. You know, Jake, every time we give them what they need, they win. The counteroffensive. What do they need right now? They need the longer-range artillery. They can hit the Iranian drones in Crimea. They're causing all this havoc, all this damage. They cannot reach those Iranian drones in Crimea. And with, uh, with Putin changing generals out now, right, not to wait out the winter, but to go on the offensive in the winter, we know they're going to come the supply lines through the south, through Crimea up north. Those attackums are so important. I've stressed this to Secretary Austin, General Milley, Secretary Blinken, I think, agrees with me in this assessment, and it's time that we get that done. Uh, Let's change topics, because uh, last week you requested documents from the State Department for your committee's investigation uh, into the withdrawal from Afghanistan under President uh, Biden. I'm just wondering, just in terms of your your investigation, is the deal that Pompeo and Trump, that they cut with the Taliban, which the Biden administration points to as part of the reason why they withdrew as they did. Is that going to be part of the investigation? I mean, sure. We're going to look at all uh, ties between the Taliban and the United States government. But, you know, I sent this uh, 10-page letter, very uh, comprehensive, asking for documents that I asked State Department prior uh, to this Congress. When we did an investigation, State Department did not comply with that. I want to know about the dissenting cable from the U.S. Embassy. Why did 23 employees dissent from the policy of the United States? I want to know why they turned over the evacuation and HKI airport to the Taliban that led to the suicide bomber killing uh, 13 servicemen and women. I want to know why they gave up Bagram Air Base. 
Why did they defy the intelligence community and the generals out there saying it was going to fall really fast? And also, maybe we should have kept a residual force. There's so many unanswered questions, Jake. And who deserves this is the, the veterans uh, and the Gold Star mothers. That's why we're doing this for them. Uh, you were in the meeting, as you noted, uh, with the Dutch president. Uh, I'm sorry, the Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte, uh, and President Biden uh, today. Um, Biden was urging the Netherlands to support new U.S. restrictions on Chinese uh, chip making technology. Uh, this is obviously a big issue. The CHIP Act was a big uh, bipartisan push in the last Congress. Did the prime minister seem receptive to that idea? Very. This is great news. I met with the Japanese. Remember, in semiconductor, the tools to make the semiconductor advanced. We have them. Uh, uh, Taiwan has them. Japan and the Netherlands, right? So if we curtail our uh, sale of these machines or tools, we have to make sure that Japan does the same and the Netherlands. I introduced the Chips for America Act. Proud to say it got passed, but it won't do any good if we can still send the stuff into China. Uh, the good news is the prime minister of the Netherlands is very receptive, right on board with the uh, Japanese that I talked to. And I think this is actually going to go forward. And to your point, if you want to look for some bipartisanship in this partisan town, I think you're going to find it uh, on these issues related to China. Um, last question for you, just because so many of your Republican House colleagues have called for George Santos, the, the congressman who uh, I'm not sure if he's told the truth about anything at all in his entire resume. Uh, people have been calling for him uh, to resign, whether newly elected Congressman Max Miller from Ohio to so many members of the New York Republican dele delegation. Uh, former Speaker Paul Ryan was here uh, a few days ago and said, that Santos said was a fraudulent candidacy. It wasn't just embellished. It was fraudulent. What do you think? Should he resign? You know, we have an ethics uh, committee. I served on that for three terms. He, he will not be assigned to that committee, I can assure <laughs> you. Uh, but we have a process, right? He'll go through ethics. I worked at Public Integrity Department of Justice. It looks like there are things now that may get referred to DOJ. I don't know for sure. But he's going to undergo this uh, review and investigation through ethics and the Department of Justice, uh, and they will do their job. I, I don't personally like uh, a candidate. I don't know how he got through the process being such an imposter. I don't know why his opponent didn't bring this out in the election or, quite frankly, why he wasn't screened as a candidate better than he was. He never should be in Congress with that kind of, uh, uh, with that kind of reputation. But I know our ethics committee and Department of Justice will deal with this. The new chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Mike McCall from the great state of Texas. Thanks for being here. Good Thank to see you. you, as always. Grounds for impeachment. Republicans are not quite united on efforts to remove DHS Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas from office. Also ahead, a major development in the case of missing Massachusetts mom, Anna Walsh. An arrest warrant was just issued for her husband, charging him with her murder. Stay with us. In our politics lead, some House Republicans are moving quickly to try to oust Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Articles of impeachment have already been drafted. Three committee hearings on concerns at the border are in the works. But as CNN's Priscilla Alvarez reports for us now, not every Republican is on board. Migrants lining up along the U.S.-Mexico border. Cities overwhelmed. It's a crisis, Republicans say, of the administration's own making. And they argue Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is to blame, even teasing potential impeachment. Should that person stay in their job? Well, I raise the issue they shouldn't. 
So the thing that we can do is we can investigate. And in that investigation could lead to an impeachment inquiry. Republicans allege that Mayorkas failed to enforce the nation's immigration laws. And they argue he lied to Congress when he said this to a House committee. Will you testify under oath right now? Do we have operational control, yes or no? Yes, we do. And we have we operational are... control of the borders. Yes, we do. Just days into the start of the new Congress, Republican Representative Pat Fallon of Texas introduced articles of impeachment against Mayorkas. The exceedingly rare move has picked up steam in the conference, with key committee chairs already laying the groundwork and preparing to hold a series of hearings on border security. But GOP leadership has yet to commit to moving ahead on impeachment. Mayorkas, meanwhile, remains undeterred, officials say, and intends to stay at the helm of the department. I've got a lot of work to do. I'm proud to do it alongside 250,000 incredibly dedicated and talented individuals in the Department of Homeland Security, and I'm going to continue to do my work. The Constitution gives the House authority to impeach on treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Experts say it is ultimately up to lawmakers whether something is impeachable, but political disagreements are likely not enough. There's really no precedent for impeaching an officer simply because Congress is of the view that the officer has carried out their duties in a way they find distasteful or disagreeable. The Biden administration has been wrestling with a growing number of migrants for months amid mass migration in the Western Hemisphere. The protocols officials have relied on are the same ones used under former President Donald Trump. Republicans, though, take issue with how the administration has enforced the law at the border. But not all are on board with impeaching Mayorkas, including GOP Representative Tony Gonzalez. Impeachment is in case of emergency break glass, and it seems as if we have taken that to a, a common thing. It shouldn't be a common thing. Not uh, Look, DHS Secretary Mayorkas has made a lot of mistakes, and there's clearly a lot of people upset. Now, while Republicans are divided about how to move forward with impeachment, there is consensus within the party about uh, in- about the mishandling of the U.S.-Mexico border, and we're going to see those criticisms come to life in congressional hearings as early as this month. My colleagues Manu Raju and Melanie Zonona say that the first Judiciary Committee hearing may be later this month or early February. Jake Mayorkas, for his part, has no plans to resign. The department says that they should focus instead on immigration reform. And just to underscore just how rare this would be, the only cabinet official to be impeached was the U.S. Secretary of War, William Belknap. That was in 1876, and that was over a kickback scheme. And no, I was not alive at the time, Priscilla. Thank (laughs) you for asking. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. Just in, we know of at least one House committee that George Santos will sit on. What? Details next. In our politics lead, we now know of at least two House committees that embattled Republican uh, Congressman George Santos will serve on in the next Congress, even as calls grow among Democrats and Republicans for his resignation because of the many lies and fraudulent claims he made during his campaign. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, what what are you learning? What committees is he going to be on? Yeah, we just learned the two committees that he will now sit on. That is one, the Small Business Committee, another, the the House Science Committee. This uh, has been a question and a concern in the aftermath of all those lies, many of which he admitted about his past, 
questions about everything in the run-up to his campaign, calls for him to resign, including from some Republican members of Congress. But Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, indicated that he was not going to take any action on George Santos, indicating instead this would go through the House ethics process, and then they will decide what to do moving forward. So he decided to make it. He and other McCarthy allies made a decision. They gave him two committees, not the committees that Santos wanted. He wanted higher-profile committees dealing with financial services as well as with foreign affairs. But he did get two committees, and one of the committee chairmen, Roger Williams, Williams explained to me that he had no dis no role in the process. He said that Santos is a member of Congress, and that's why he's on his committee. Listen. Do you have any concerns about naming someone and all these questions about his past to your committee? Well, I don't condone what he said, what he's done. I, mean, I don't think anybody does, but that's not my role. He was elected. He represents a million people. So Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, has still not call, joined calls from other New York members, from some of the members of the uh, New York delegation, including freshmen, calling on Santos to resign, instead saying it's up to the voters, and this will go through the process, but it, making it clear here that he will serve on the committees. And, Jake, the only way the Republicans say that he will get kicked off of those committees if an indictment were to come down, given that he's under facing some serious investigations, if an indictment happens at that point, he would lose those committee assignments he won today. There's high standards there. Democratic uh, Congressman Richie Torres of New York has asked the Federal Election Commission uh, to launch an investigation into allegations that Santos broke campaign finance laws to get elected. Tell us about that. Yeah, there are some questions about a number of the sources, how he uh, was able to, uh, $700,000 in funds that he gave to his campaign. Where did the money come from? And calls for the FEC to investigate. Torres today launching this call, urging the body to get involved in this issue and joining campaign watchdogs also alarmed at what they see. Either Mr. Santos resigns under the weight of scrutiny or he resigns as part of a plea bargain with the U.S. attorney. Um, again, I'm, I'm entering the realm of speculation here, but we know that he's facing multiple investigations. But my argument to him is stop perpetuating the suffering and humiliation of your constituents. Now, Santos was asked about the source of the funds last week when he was asked by a fellow Republican congressman, Matt Gates, about that $700,000 in funds to his campaign account. He did not divulge the source of that money, which is a big part of why there are these calls, Jake, for an investigation into that money. All right, Manaraja on Capitol Hill. Thanks. Let's discuss with my panel. So, Dana, George Santos, worked, he raised money for a company that the SEC called the Ponzi scheme, and the Republicans put that small businessman on the Small Business Committee? I mean, you, you really can't make it up. It's so true. The Small Business Committee and the Science Committee. So those are not considered um, top-tier committees. I guess you can look at the bright side, is that he's not on intelligence, he's not on ethics, he's, he's not on ways and means. But, but in all seriousness, you're right. It really does not make any sense when you have uh, his home state Republican Party saying this... We didn't properly vet him. This is a disaster. He should resign. We're not even going to treat him as a member of Congress. We're going to work around him uh, to have him on committees. They're clearly banking in the leadership, Jake, uh, on the investigations going forward very quickly and so that they'll have an, a more sort of hard excuse to take him off. But that's going to be a while. And, and Abby, I want to get your reaction to something that Santos's former roommate told CNN this morning. I've always known him as Anthony DeVolder. I've never known him as George Santos.
I kind of assumed that he had made up, you know, about going to Baruch and NYU. Obviously, the you know, the truth has finally come out. Um, and I just, I, I don't understand. Did he go, like, one by one to everybody in his district and just literally pull the wool over their eyes? I mean, literally a week ago, I said, George Santos, if that is his real name, I was joking. Right, right. But, like, I mean, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I just the... It, it's really just screams pathological lies at this point. There are some things that he didn't really need to lie about that he seems to have lied about, or at least tried to kind of deceive people by creating kind of an alternative identity. And um, it, it's interesting to hear him say, uh, I assume that he lied about his education. It, it kind of makes me wonder why he assumed that, perhaps because uh, George Santos claimed some really extravagant things that he, you know, managed like billions of dollars in finances. This is a guy who we don't even think went to college at all. All of that just really, um, you know, I don't think it would be that hard to figure out that he's kind of lying about a lot of his, especially the financial services background. There's really, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot behind that. And Ryan, Speaker McCarthy has now admitted that he, quote, always had a few questions about Santos. Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman I released a say, statement today saying that that admission makes McCarthy complicit in concealing Santos's lies. What do you think? Man, this is one of those stories that is just going to get worse before it gets worse, I think. <laughs> and one of the, the reasons for that is that we're finding out that a lot more people had doubts and questions and knew more uh, about his lies and fabulism and all of those kinds of things. And so... I think um, it's, it's going to be embarrassing for people as that story continues to roll out. But the one, the one thing I would say, if there's any silver lining in any of this, it's that his clownishness, his fabulism, um, comes out of a, a period of time when that was sort of encouraged uh, in the party. And mm. I think from the midterms and the performance of the Republicans in the midterms to the clownishness at the speaker vote, and, and I'm not accusing everyone of being a clown. There were right, some right. serious people like Chip Roy doing some real, real work there. Um, to this experience with Santos, which is finally raising questions about the role of the party in recruiting, vetting, and developing candidates and, and helping that institution be stronger again. It's too early to say how that's going to go. But maybe when we take the long view and we look past his committee's assignments and whatever these investigations are going to find out, uh, this might be a moment where the Republican Party gets to, starts to get serious again about the kind of people that it's actually putting in, in, up for office. And, and while we're finding this out, we're also finding out uh, that Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene will be on the Oversight Committee. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Speaker McCarthy making a big deal uh, out of kicking um, a number of people, mm-hmm. uh, including Eric Swalwell, Congressman Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California, off the Intelligence Committee. Uh, take a listen uh, to McCarthy just a few days ago. If you got the briefing I got from the FBI, you wouldn't have Swalwell on any committee. And you're going to tell me other Democrats couldn't fill that slot? He cannot get a security clearance in the private sector. So would you like to give him a government clearance? You asked me questions about Santos. You asked the questions about Swalwell. Not only was he getting a clearance, he was inside an intel committee. Now, I have, uh, a number of us have reached out and said, what are you talking about? Give us more information. Um, and we haven't been able to get anything. What do you make of it all? Well, ever since the Democrats decided they were going to move Marjorie Taylor Greene from the committees, it was pretty clear that if Republicans got control of the House, they were going to play tit for tat. When you look at what happened during that speaker vote, the question kept 
coming up. Well, why is a Lauren Bobard and Matt Gates not supporting McCarthy, but Marjorie Taylor Greene is? Well, because she probably made a deal early on with Kevin McCarthy to put her on a committee that she has no business being on. You also look at someone like a ghost star who is on a committee where we know, you know, when you kind of remember him walking up slowly, casting his vote for uh, McCarthy that night and then kind of going and apologizing to Matt Gates. It's probably also because some deal was negotiated with Kevin McCarthy to get those votes. I think what he's doing now on the Democratic side, show us the proof of what you're talking about, about Swalwell, but you won't see anything because he's playing tit for tat. And this is some red meat he's throwing to his base. What do you make of it? I, I, I mean, I understand like criticizing somebody, but saying I got a yeah. classified briefing from the FBI about so-and-so, and if you knew what I knew, you would agree with what I'm doing. I, I'm not saying if that's not true. Maybe it is. I have no idea, but I've just not seen such a thing before. And the shield that he has is the word classified. Right. He can say, I can't tell you what I know, but trust me, it's bad. Um, the, the question is whether there are other Republicans or, frankly, Democrats who might have access to that same classified information who could corroborate not the information, because we don't know the, the facts and the content, but just the notion that something really, really bad, so bad. But I think Pelosi was given the same briefing, mm-hmm. and she was fine with I mean, Swalwell being on the committee. Look, Eric Swalwell has been, to your point, one of the most rabidly partisan, proudly so, Democrats. And he also has been somebody on the Intelligence Committee. And this is no question uh, payback from from Republicans. And um, remember, this is all part of McCarthy. You mentioned that Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, on a key committee and others as well. It's also part of him trying to assuage that wing to say, look, I'm getting them back for what they did to you because they took you off these committees. And not just getting them back. I mean, Swalwell has become an actual focus of a lot of right-wing attention. So the act of punishing him is the objective here for McCarthy because that's one of the agenda items that the far right has. I mean, I don't know that there are many other people that get fundraising emails sent out about him. He's definitely one of them on the Republican side. But I, I do want to make a point about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar in particular. You know, when when former President Trump had Nick Fuentes at his uh, beach club at Mar-a-Lago, uh, that was a huge firestorm. But we should remember Marjorie Taylor Greene was on a stage with Nick Fuentes, mm-hmm. hugged him on that stage. Paul Gosar spoke in front of Fuentes's uh, white nationalist convention. None of those things have gotten any mention. And not, not only that, Marjorie Taylor Greene is basically considers herself not only just a member in good standing, but a member of McCarthy's leadership team. And that's not being discussed amid all the things that's happening here. But he's turning a blind eye to that. He's turning a blind eye to Santos. He doesn't, it's, and it's only because he has no room for error here. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. Doorbell camera video revealing a shocking scene, a young child waving a handgun, pulling the trigger. What we learned today when the child's father the went child to court. Stay with, with us. Our national lead now, a murder warrant has been issued for Brian Walsh and the death of his wife, Anna, who was last seen on New Year's Day. Brian Walsh was initially arrested for misleading police over his actions around the time she disappeared. Sources say investigators have found a bloody knife in the couple's home and a hacksaw and apparent bloodstains at a local trash facility. CNN's Jason Carroll is in Cohasset, Massachusetts, covering this for us. Cohasset is where Anna was last seen. Jason, do we know if any of the evidence that's been found during the search for Anna played a role in this murder warrant being issued today? 
Without question, Jake. And we're expecting to hear more about what investigators found uh, once uh, Walsh uh, attends his arraignment hearing, and that's scheduled for tomorrow. And at that point, again, prosecutors are sure to lay out what they have. They have a great deal of circumstantial evidence, some of it you mentioned, that hacksaw that was found at that trash facility. In addition to that, the bloody blanket, the blood in the basement of the home. But in addition to that, in all likelihood, uh, finally, we may hear some information about the forensic evidence that they have in this case as well. In addition to that, they're going to talk about the pattern of behavior that Walsh exhibited following his wife's disappearance, including searching for over the Internet on how to dispose of a body and again, buying more than $400 worth of cleaning supplies at this wall at a Walmart. So all of that is going to play a role in terms of what we hear tomorrow when Walsh is arraigned on those murder charges. Jake, do we know if the prosecution is planning on revealing a, a possible motive at the arraignment tomorrow? Oh, yeah. Very good question. I mean, that is one thing that we've been hearing since being on the ground over and over again. Why allegedly did this man do this to his wife? Uh, here in the, in the state of Massachusetts and the Commonwealth, uh, prosecutors don't necessarily have to show motive. They have to show intent uh, for why a murder was committed, but they don't necessarily have to show motive. Then they don't have to say that there is even a body. But certainly that does help with jurors. So tomorrow, once again, during this arraignment, uh, hopefully we'll hear something about a motive because that is certainly the question on the minds of a number of people here. All right, Jake. Jason Carroll in Cohasset, Massachusetts. Thanks so much. Also in our national lead, investigators in California are looking for suspects in what police frighteningly describe as either a cartel or gang-related mass killing that left six people dead, including a teenaged mother and her 10-month-old infant. This happened early Monday in Goshen. That's a town southeast of Fresno in a rural part of central California. CNN's Stephanie Elam is following this story. Authorities just held a news conference. Stephanie, what did they have to say? Yeah, and it's as horrific for law enforcement as it is for everyone else hearing this, Jake. And the way the sheriff described this, he said it was a deliberate, intentional, and horrific attack. He called it a massacre of these six family members. He said it was a 16-year-old girl and her infant son who were killed. Also, a grandmother shot to death in the bed. They said two people were found outside of the residence, one in the doorway. All of this, just horrific details. And they're saying that by the time law enforcement got there in seven minutes, the people who perpetrated this murder, these murders were already gone. In fact, take a listen to what the sheriff had to say about this. We believe that the 16-year-old teenage mother and her small infant actually was fleeing and running from the scene. What we have since learned through forensics, that it was clear that the shooters stood over the top of the 16-year-old mother and fired rounds into her head. The 10-month-old infant also suffered from the same attack. And the sheriff calling all of this egregious in his 36 years in law enforcement, he said he's never seen a teenage mother and an infant killed in such a way. Jake. Just horrific. Do they have any leads? They do, but the sheriff was keeping some of his cards very close to his chest, making it very clear that Whatever is put out there in the media is also what these perpetrators will know as well. So while he has some information, he's not going to share all of it, but did say that they were looking for two suspects 
possibly a third person as well who may have helped them get away. Uh, but they're working with other surrounding counties. Obviously, there's federal law enforcement there helping them as well, because obviously this has unnerved and unsettled an entire community. But they want people to know that they do think that this was a targeted attack. And because they want people who have any information to help them out, they've now offered up a $10,000 reward to try to see if people have anything on, maybe a, a, a home camera that may have seen anything, any information to find out what happened uh, just around 3.30 in the morning local time on Monday. Just awful. CNN Stephanie Elam, thanks so much. Also in our national lead, a child in Indiana, possibly between the ages of three and four, was seen on live TV over the weekend alone outside an apartment waving a handgun and pulling the trigger. Police say they have arrested the father and charged him with child neglect. According to an affidavit, the man says he didn't own a gun. CNN's Gene Casares is following this disturbing story. Gene, how did police find the gun? Well, the, the toddler in diapers pointed at a desk that had a roll-top cover, and they opened it up, and there it was. You know, the way this started was that the neighbors called 911 saying that there is someone in the hallway that has a gun, and then they got there, and the neighbors said it's a toddler in diapers that is waving the gun. And the police said, you know, are you sure this is not a toy gun? No, the lady says. The neighbor actually said, I sell guns. And I know this was a real gun, and I think it's a 9-millimeter gun. So they go to the apartment. They do a cursory search of that apartment. They find nothing in plain view. But Shane Osborne comes out. And by the way, the, the little toddler is the one that let them in. He comes out, and he says, just as you said, I, I've never brought a gun into this apartment. Now, my cousin has brought a gun and sort of keeps it here sometimes when he is mentally not feeling as strong as he should. But to my knowledge, there's no gun in here at all. So they didn't find anything. They left. And they're about to go out of the apartment complex, and the neighbor comes, and she shows security video on an iPhone, and it shows the little toddler waving the gun and pulling the trigger. So they march back into that apartment very quickly, and they tell the uh, alleged father we know there's a gun because we just saw a video. And so they, he consented. He helped with the search. And the little boy actually is the one that found that gun loaded, 15 bullets in a magazine, but not one bullet was in the chamber. And that's why if you pulled the trigger, it didn't go off, Jake. So where's the boy now? Where's the toddler? Well, what we have learned from the probable cause affidavit is that the grandmother Osborne's mother took it to the birth mother, and she now has it. And he had said that the, the mother that has custody is really sick. I'm really sick, too. And he was woken up when the police came in. So, um, so he is holding firm, though, that he did not know that gun was in there. What is the father being charged with specifically, and, and, and what's the law? Well, first of all, these are arresting charges, and it's neglect of a dependent child neglect. And I looked up the law because I think it's interesting. In Indiana, you have to knowingly or intentionally place the child in a situation that endangers the child's life. So knowingly or intentionally. So did he know that gun was in there? He, he knew at points a gun was in there, but at that specific moment. Now, his, his court hearing is going to be Thursday at one o'clock. Uh, we are able to watch it. On, uh, on live streaming. I called the clerk's office. He doesn't have an attorney yet because I really wanted to ask him some questions. But it will be interesting to see if these arresting charges result in prosecutorial charges 
or if the prosecution adds more charges or if they don't charge at all. Yeah. You know, this happens all the time all over the country. It's just this time we saw it happen. Yeah. But parents irresponsibly, uh, well, who knows what happened in this case, but too often little kids are, get access to guns. Gene Casares, thank you so much. You had one job just to have the NFL kicker who's likely second-guessing his foot-eye coordination today. Close out our show with some sports leads. Today, the reigning NBA champions graced the White House with their presence. The Golden State Warriors were in the building. Team members got to meet with President Biden and celebrate their 2022 championship win. And NBA superstar Steph Curry made this connection between his job and the president's. For us to be here to uh, find the, the, the common synergies within you know what we do on the court and what we represent and uh when it comes to providing hope, inspiration, uh, belief uh, to everybody that watches us play, that's what you do in, in your roles uh, leading our country. And um, to f- continue to do exactly what you said, uh, do things together, uh, continue to preach that message. That's, that's what we're all about. Also in our sports lead, if you thought you were having a bad day, just know you didn't break an embarrassing sports record on national television. Here's CNN's Ginny Moose on the uh, Ginny Moose on the Dallas Cowboys kicker who missed four straight extra points in last night's wild card game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's called an extra point, but what made these points extra is that over and over, off to the right, off to the left, they missed. The most extra points missed by one player in one game, four. It was like the worst Groundhog Day ever for Dallas kicker Brett Maher. His own quarterback threw his helmet in frustration after the third miss. Oh, my God. You've got to be kidding me. I've never seen anything like it. Why are we kicking it? Why are we kicking it? Fans yelled at the TV. Bro, can't nobody believe this shit? They added sound effects. We, oh my God, we, we. They compared his kicking to the Three Stooges, a fake joke tweet that was not posted by Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, nevertheless had fans in stitches. If you can kick and are currently in the stadium right now, come on down to the field. We got a jersey for you. Commentators like Peyton Manning wondered. That's kind of guy at halftime of a playoff game. Others speculated about the kicker's next career move. Maybe the only way it could have been worse is if they pulled a Charlie Brown and Lucy on him. It's time I'm going to kick that football clear to the moon. The funny thing is that Maher's long field goal kicking has been great, but the piddly extra point flummoxed him until finally the fifth time's the charm. And it is good! He got a standing ovation. Lucky for Maher, Dallas beat Tampa Bay 31-14. Many blamed his performance on the yips. Yips, yips, yips. A state of nervous tension affecting an athlete. Never has a kicker been kicked so much when he's down, and never has an extra point felt so pointless. He might have this record for a long time. Genie Mouse, CNN. It's no good! New York. The Cowboys won, so... Anyway, our thanks to CNN's Genie Mouse. Uh, up next, White House official John Kirby is in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer as we see a new urgency in Ukraine nearly one year into its war 
with Russia. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.